Stand clear of the closing doors, please. In a Brooklyn fractured into speculative storyscapes, fantasy, horror, sci-fi, and the just plain weird come together in The Kaleidocast. Join Professor Brad Overstreet, Senior Junior Lecturer Sam Spellingbound, and Assistant Crypto Provost Don Fairweather Jenkins of the Metatechnic Institute, and Inquisitor James Earl King II, as they explore the stories drifting in and out of your reality. Professor Brad Overstreet and Senior Junior Lecturer Sam Spellingbound in Suite 4C, Basement Level, of the Fort Greene Metatechnic Institute. We're out of the office baiting story traps right now, so please leave... Brad, the Steampunk Space Cowboy story's gotten loose in your side of the office! Get it! Before it starts spawning fanfic! I see it! How about out? <laughs> Alright. Sam, Brad, Mrs. James... If this call finds you still alive, I've got something you want. Last night at 3 a.m., I was on the yard train making my way to Seagate to collect monster stories. Some of the best ones wash up on the beach when all the stars are gone. But I fell asleep on the train, missed my transfer, and ended up under Gravesend, stuck at Bay Ridge and 95th Street. Waiting in the whispering dark on the platform for the train to turn around, I heard footsteps behind me running away down the tunnel. I turned around and nobody was there, but then I saw this story that had not been there before. It rotated slowly on the bench, polished and shining under the lamps. Soon as it stopped moving, I picked it up to get a closer look. It was uncomfortably warm, and there were strains of smoke and myth and poetry running through it. I turned it over, and I saw the author's name, Forrest F. White. I'd heard this name before. I was sure I'd hear it again. Call me back. Bidding has already begun. Purgatory by Forrest F. White Like the sound of soft snow falling on snow, the distant echoes of shuffling feet in the dark grotto of your mind wake you. As you return to consciousness, the indistinct edges of your senses become sharp, and each is adumbrated by the searing cold that rakes at your cheeks and extremities. You sit up and gasp, taking a deep breath of the numbing cold into your body. Then you exhale a cloud of fine hoar that glimmers pale in the night-cast air. You gaze into the vast nothing around you and wonder what has happened. Standing and walking, you follow a vague sense of the muttering and shuffling in the brunette space beyond your reach, but encounter nothing. The cold mercifully anesthetizes your flesh as you wander. In this abyss, you lose track of yourself, your footsteps, and time, before the gentle awareness that you do not feel the need to breathe halts your aimless progress. I must be dead, you say to yourself. Someone stifles a cough behind you, and you turn. There, in a dim moat of golden light, sits an elderly man at a dark wooden desk. His skin is like wet leather stretching over his skull, and deep shadows obscure his eyes and lips. 
The light glints off of his glasses and a small polished brass balance on the desk in front of him. At his left hand, a white bird with a slender yellow beak perches over a small notebook of yellowing leaves, each decorated in a thin, inky calligraphy. The bird regards you intently and dips one stained claw into the inkwell upon which it stands, and proceeds to scratch a few glyphs onto the page. You are mostly right, the elderly man says, his voice chiming like silver cymbals and laughter. Your body has expired, but here you are. The shadow over his mouth widens as he smiles. Please, he says, motioning with one large veiny hand. Sit. You step back and find a chair awaiting you. It creaks like a leaning ship as you settle onto it. Now, the man begins, opening a drawer in the desk. How? you interrupt him. His smile disappears. An accident, he sighs. You won't remember it. It was swift. But trust me when I tell you the manner of your demise is not important now, just that you have made the journey. You nod numbly. The bird folds its bill under a wing and mumbles, Nevermore. You and the man glare at the bird. Please excuse my friend. Authors seem unable to resist irony, the man says. What? You croak, and take a breath to fill your lungs again. What do I do now? You are to be judged, the man says, pulling a thick black feather from the open desk drawer and placing it on one scale pan of the balance. We weigh your heart against this feather, he says, smiling with satisfaction. Oh, you say. Why? Should your heart be lighter than the feather, you shall ascend to the heavens to be united with your ancestors and the stars. Should it be heavier, you shall be devoured by the beast. From the oppressive darkness, an inhuman howl fills your ears. You look around, startled, peering into the gloom, but cannot see anything beyond the small circle of light that surrounds the desk. As quickly as the scream began, it is silent, and the inky void slowly fills once again with soft shuffling and whispers. Why my heart? you ask, placing your hand on your chest. Because your heart is where your soul resides, the man replies. Surely you knew your mind was not the only motivating force of your existence. You pause and wonder, what do I do? Reach back and pluck your heart from behind you. Here it is your heart that follows you, not you who follow your heart. Then place it on the scales. You feel your way from the nape of your neck down the knobs of your spine. It is a strange sensation reaching into your body, but for the first time since arriving you feel some warmth there. Gripping it firmly, you draw that warmth out and hold it out in front of you. It gleams, ominous and red, like a hot ember in a fire, but feels light enough in your outstretched hand. Now place it on the scale, the man says. The bird lifts its dyed talon, poising to record whatever might happen. As you lean to place your heart on the scale, you are suddenly afraid. In your mind, you begin listing the good and evil, light and heavy events of your life. Trembling, you ponder whether your heart is light enough. The doubt expands in your chest like frigid water. I don't want to do this, you blurt out, and pull your hand and heart back. The man and the bird exchange looks. It is your heart the man says, facing you again. No one can force you to accept judgment. You nod. And? The man's smile returns, but it is smaller now. And you must remain here until you do. 
You stand up and shuffle away from the desk and the scales, lost in your thoughts. You clutch your heart tightly in your hand, letting no light or warmth escape, and begin enumerating the many events of your life, considering how much each of them might weigh. The shuffling of your feet sounds like soft snow falling on snow, and you brush against others, cold bodies in the dark. They whisper about their pasts, the things they've done, and why. You begin to whisper with them, and cannot decide if you'd rather stay here, free from judgment, or leave your heart and past behind you upon the scales. Forrest F. White, who writes under the pseudonym F. F. White, is a speculative fiction author and poet from California who joined the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers in 2013. He is the author of two books, A Phantom Agony and Gospels of Rage, and his work has appeared most recently in Sci-Fi Quest, spelled S-C-I-F-A-I-K-U-E-S-T, the Sci-Fi Haiku Magazine, and Nomad's Choir, Literary Magazine. Forrest F. White can be found at ffwhite.com forward slash professional. Wilson Fowley has been getting more and more into voice work ever since 2008 when he narrated his first story for Podcastle. If you're in the Vancouver, Canada area, or even if you just love a good fun show course, check out the Maple Leaf Singers, the group he directs. You can find them at their own website, www.mapleleafsingers.com, or on their Facebook page. I got a lead on a wild story loose in Park Slope. At first, I thought it was another false sighting. It's so sweet and wholesome there. Young families, toddlers in khakis, Etsy stores. I even saw a cat on a leash there once, so I almost missed it. The story was camouflaged and stone still, hiding amongst the cut glass pieces of this mosaic on the wall of a coffee shop advertising gluten-free oatmeal cookies. I've seen these kinds before, rare though, a short-tailed Cassie Alexandris Mercurius, or, as it's more commonly known, Mercury by Cassie Alexander. This breed is particularly drawn to innocence. These people are lucky. I caught it before it snatched up one of their kids. Mercury by Cassie Alexander Once upon a time, there was a good little girl, the kind that other mothers pointed to on grocery store candy aisles as an example of exemplary behavior. She was good, and she never cried until one day she came home and discovered her father had turned to stone. Her name was Mary. That, too. Calls were made. Many doctors were consulted, and specimens were chipped away. But as time passed, Mary's mother a practical woman, started using his outstretched hand as a place to hold keys and dangle purses, and the rest of him as a coat rack. It was then that Mary started crying. She prayed the prayers of a normal little girl, and then the tears begun. Not the normal snotty tears of a typical child, though she did cry those at first. 
but silver dribbles of mercury rolling down her cheeks to fall upon the ground. Mary was rather like a hazardous materials pepper shaker, and the EPA was not amused. You've got to stop, said her mother. I can't, she said. Even when she was happy, the tears still flowed. You're a health hazard. The other children won't play with you. I know, said Mary, with silver trailing down her cheeks. And the school called, and the EPA called, and the doctors looked at her, and the psychologists listened to her. Only no one could turn her father back from stone. And so she couldn't really stop crying. Not all the way. So her mother invested money in a new name and a new house, and when they got there, she shut Mary up in her upstairs room and barricaded the door. Her only friend was her teddy bear, Teddy B, whom she shared her small meals with. Look, Mary, he began one afternoon, you've got to rescue your father. But how was a little girl supposed to free herself from the room that she was locked in? But... No buts, Mary. He shook his time-curled head. This room has three other exits. We must use one of them. She bit her lip and looked around. There was a closet, a mirror, and a window. It's either that or stay here forever. Maybe even drown. As usual, Teddy B was right. There was a centimeter of mercury pooled on the floor, and it rippled every time she walked. Which one do we take first? she asked. And then, the closet. The closet is always the worst, she said, answering her own question. Tucking Teddy B underneath her arm, they went in. Closets don't lead to imaginary kingdoms. Most children know this. Only that due to discrepancies between British and American vocabulary, they're not quite sure what a wardrobe is. In America, children know that bad things lurk in closets. Mary's closet was no exception to this rule. Hello? She shouted down at whatever might be there, as the door closed behind her and the darkness folded in. Hello? Something shouted back from below. It had a mucky voice, phlegmatic. It spoke of sewers and of rot. She felt along the drywall with one hand until it faded into cool cement. Her tears splashed along in front of her. She could feel them falling, but couldn't see them in the dark. What are you? She called ahead and heard echoed. What are you? in response. That's not funny, Mary said. That's not funny, said whatever it was lurking ahead. Teddy B, I want to leave, she whispered. You should leave, said the voice, while you still can. I think he's right, Teddy B whispered back. I know I'm right, said the voice. Mary nodded to herself, 
turned around, and ran back up until her hand touched drywall and she walloped her head on the inside of her closet door. She lay stunned for a bit. Then she opened the door and shoved herself through, skidding out onto the silver pond of her tears, gasping with relief. That didn't go very well, Teddy B said. No, it didn't, shouted the voice from behind her, thick and gummy, and she closed the door upon it. The next few days passed as they had before, with her crying even when she smiled, and the level of mercury in her room inching upwards. She listened at her door and heard her mother entertaining company below. Why, yes, I did have that piece commissioned, she heard her mother say. It's worth how much? Really? Mary looked at Teddy B. It's time to go. The moon is full, Teddy B suggested. Mary nodded. The window it was. Mary pulled a pink chair over against the currents of the rising silver tide until she could reach the windowsill and step up onto it. She stood at the sill, hugging Teddy B to her chest. Tears splashed down around her feet, the mercury pooling for a second between her toes before slipping through. The moon was full tonight, and now, like all the other full moons she'd ever seen, the man in the moon was smiling at her. How do I get up there? she asked him. Like you do everything else in life, little girl, he said, down to her, his huge mottled face forming the words, Take a step. Mary did. The silver of her tears, which had never held shape or form before, arced out before her in a metallic rainbow, surging forward. She walked until she couldn't remember not walking, until her feet found the surface of the moon, and a man sitting sagely upon it. Around him were ungainly piles of socks, marbles, and a bottle labeled Wits. He was the color of rock, and she was cold from the night air. Hello, little girl, he said. What is your name? Hello, moon, she responded, and curtsied like she'd read children were supposed to do in old-timey books. My name is Mary. Well, Mary, what brings you here? I need to know how to bring a statue back to life. Why would you want to do that? Being a statue sounds like a fine occupation to me. I'm sure I've got a collection of them up here. Mostly painted gnomes. The statue is my father. Oh, that's a different kettle. The man in the moon regarded her, his smile unending. What was your name again? Mary, she said, with a fresh curtsy. The man in the moon nodded. Mary, were you a bad child? 
Mary thought about her childhood. All the time she could have taken a shortcut, but didn't. The time she'd gone to church and really tried to listen, instead of falling asleep. And lastly, and most particularly painful, the time she gave someone back their dropped quarter instead of keeping it to buy a snow cone on a summer day when it had been very, very hot. No, not once, never, she answered truthfully. Then why do you cry? I can't help it. I'd stop if I could. Mary made a heap of jangled keys smooth with her palm and sat upon it. I don't know how. Do you? That is a hard question, little girl. You're full of hard questions. She nodded. She knew it was, and that they were, since she'd thought of nothing else for quite some time. He blinked his wide set eyes at her. What was your name again? She thought about this for a moment. Mary, she said. Well, Mary, all those questions. You don't have to answer them, you know, he said, his smile never once ceasing. You could always. Stay here with me. The moon is very pleasant this time of year. She looked around. It was cold and desolate, except for the piles of things, which only added to the desolation. Her feet rested upon a loose stack of collars with tags that read Fluffy or Queenie. Stay and forget. Get things, the moon continued. It is much easier to forget than to remember. For instance, what was your name again? The word took even longer to form on her lips. Mary, she repeated as she looked around. It's a little lonely up here for my taste. It's why I sleep most of the time. And as if to illustrate this, he put a hand to his mouth, hiding a languorous yawn. Mary felt it stretch across her and urge her lips to do the same. Mary, we need to go home now, Teddy B said, tugging on her sleeve. But I'm so tired, Teddy B, and I'm not hurting anyone here, am I? And it certainly was nice to forget. Teddy B pondered. You're hurting yourself. How? Mary tucked him under her arm, leaning over to nestle against the keys. They were becoming comfortable. I don't know, but you are. You just are, Teddy B said, as his mind wasn't meant for complexities. It is, too. She has to wake up. He wriggled in an effort to wake her, but found himself in a terrifying situation. Free of her arms, he was beginning to drift away. Mary! she heard a voice call. But who was Mary? She didn't remember a Mary. 
Don't forget your father, Mary! A stuffed bear cried down to her from the beginning of low orbit. A lighter passed by him, and he threw it at her. Mary, don't forget me! The lighter made a slow arc and hit her between the eyes. Mary! he screamed. She blinked away and looked at him, his fluffy figure shrinking against the darkness beyond. Teddy? She sounded out his name and caught the spinning lighter. He was floating off into space, like all the other forgotten debris. But he wasn't really forgotten, and neither was she. Almost, but not quite. She looked down to see where the tears from her eyes had merged with the keys into a silver nest. In it, she saw her own face, taking on the gray cast of the man's. She gasped in horror, and her mouth made a perfect, moon-shaped O. I'm sorry, but I need to go home now. Mary stood in the pile of metal bits. Your home didn't sound like much of a home to me, little girl. She wagged her head, trapped between a shake and a nod. It's not but at least it's mine. Good night, then, little girl. I'll be sleeping here. Say hello again sometime. She nodded politely, and then the silver beneath her formed steps, first over to where Teddy B was swimming against the nothingness, and then back down towards the window of her home. They rested for a day, with the curtains firmly drawn. The mercury was higher now, her endless tears knee-high, lapping at the edge of her bed. No, he doesn't disassemble. We got him in through the garage. If you take off the arm, the auction house will be... Mary heard from below. We're running out of time, said Teddy B., and Mary knew it to be true. The mirror? She asked Hetty B. She waded to her vanity. Her hair was stringy with metal tracings, and she barely recognized herself. I'm not the same, Teddy B. Her bear was forced to agree. Her cheeks were sunken in, and her eyes were hollow, except for the omnipresent trail of tears. Let's go, Mary. Maybe the answer is in there. She put her hand against the glass of the mirror. It held for a moment before folding and taking her in. Mary looked around. She was standing inside a fountain on the corner of a city street. Behind her was a shop window where she could see her own reflection, wet and wan, dangling Teddy B. In front of her was a busy intersection and people driving cars. It had been a long time since she'd been outside proper, and the light from the sun was bright. Maybe we have escaped, said Teddy B. We still don't have a good answer for father, though, said Mary, as she stepped out of the fountain to begin walking down the street. A clock tower chimed noon. 
People poured out of the buildings and began heading towards her. The sun was high and blinding, and soon she was standing in a small puddle of her own tears. Look, a little girl! Someone cried. A woman's hand caught her shoulder, and her pink hat eclipsed the sun. Mary looked up at her and gasped. The woman's face was just as silver as the tears she cried, like a mirror. But instead of reflecting her own image, her father's looked back at her, bent and distorted around the woman's face. It's Mary, the woman announced. A crowd began to gather around her. A man in a policeman's uniform stopped. A hot dog vendor pulled up a cart. Other girls her own age came over, wearing uniforms. Each of them had strange metal faces that were only able to reflect back at her her father's image. Daddy? she whispered. And all of the people with their different clothing and body shapes and hair colors looked at her attentively. The policeman tilted her father's face down at her. Can we help you, little girl? Are you my father? I look like him, don't I? The policeman responded, and the crowd agreed. But the problem was that everyone looked like him, and yet none of them precisely were. And where did that leave her? Come with me. I'm your father, said one of the girls her own age, holding out a small and feminine hand. No, come with me. The hot dog vendor held out a wiener, slathered in relish like her father used to enjoy. I'm your father. But, she began, and she backed away until she ran into the plump stomach of the first older woman, who put her hand on Mary's shoulder. Come with me. I'm your father, the woman assured her, pink hat and all. We can have a future together. No, Mary shouted, shaking her head. None of you are my father. Yes, we are, the crowd all disagreed. Mary twisted away from the woman and backed up until her calves hit the edge of the fountain behind her. I'm your father, said the crowd, with a hundred many mouths. Stay with me. We can be a family again. I've got to go. I'm sorry, Mary said. And the many not fathers shook their heads and reached for her. She stepped into the fountain behind her. The water splashed her, and she remembered the reality she'd left behind. The fate of her true father trapped in stone and the way her mother was even now auctioning him off, and more tears leaked out of her eyes than was normal, to fall through the water and line the tile of the pool below. She looked to Teddy B for strength, but his face was taking on a metallic sheen as well. She squealed in horror and dropped him. You can't leave. I'm your father, Mary said the mouths again. And this time they reached for her, hands with bracelets and wristwatches, holding purses and bus passes and hot dogs and umbrellas. 
and she shrank back from them and dove down. The water overwhelmed her, and she faded into it, until she faded out again and found herself crouched upon her vanity. The people of the mirror slammed their hands against their side of it, water rippling just like her tears upon the floor, and she saw Teddy B trapped, swirling beneath their feet. One of them stepped on him, and she winced in agony. But he was made of doll things. He got up, dusted himself off, and swam towards her, and put his little paw upon the mirror's surface. She reached out and carefully snatched him through. I'm sorry, Teddy B. I thought I'd lost you. You were still crying, remember? Those were your tears I wore. And really, I am half made of you after all. But the rest of me is cotton and horsehair and sterner stuff than girl. He shook himself off in her arms. The people behind them kept banging on the mirror, with their many father faces, expressing anguish and dismay. Mary studiously did not look at the mirror the next day. The not-fathers were still very unhappy with her. She looked out the window instead and saw her mother below, talking to their neighbor. Silver Rainbow? No, I didn't see it. Say, can I move your trash cans tomorrow morning? I've got a big truck coming in. I'm selling some artwork. Yes, that statue. It's very realistic. Yes. Mary sighed from her perch on an island of cushions atop her bed. The mercury was hip-deep now, and yet her tears refused to end. This isn't very fair, you know, she said to no one in particular. Teddy B. nodded. Together, they surveyed their options. The moon was no good, and the mirror was no good, and they were left with the closet again. We'll need a light to go down there, Teddy B. said. Mary fished in her pockets. She still had the lighter she had gotten on the moon. Do you think it'll work? Teddy B. contemplated this. His small and furry head tilted to one side. Doesn't matter what I think, really. It's your story. Well then, she said and got off the bed. She waded across the room, even as her tears added to the pond. Teddy B. was wedged underneath one arm, and the lighter was held out in the hand of the other like a charm. Hope this works, Mary said and opened the door, with a spilling whoosh, and the mercury in her room poured out and down, and Mary and Teddy B. were swept along with it. They slipped and slid in the darkness tumbling down, 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 until they reached the end. Are we there? whispered Mary. I don't know, Teddy B. whispered back. You're here, said the voice they'd heard on their previous expedition. It hadn't gotten more friendly, or less dangerous sounding in the meantime. You don't want to be here. I'm not... Very nice. 
Mary's thumb found the striking edge of the lighter and hit it with no effect. She was tempted to ask the scary questions of who and what and where, but she skipped to the important ones. Do you know how to turn my father back from stone? A pause, while the darkness felt thicker and deeper. No, said the voice from over her left shoulder. Do you know anyone who does? She chattered out, trying to relight the lighter again. Another pause, and a breath on her ear. No. And then the only questions left to ask were of the scary kind. Just as the darkness grew teeth inside her mind and prepared to bite, she tried the lighter one more time, and it took. She was in a cement antechamber, chest deep in mercury, and there was nothing there. Not in front of her, at least. She turned around, sloshing in the silver murk. Where are you? I'm over here, said the voice behind her. Mary held the lighter out to one side now, as far as she could reach, and found that if she twisted her head just so, she could see a shadow over her far shoulder. But as she turned, it turned as well, and she couldn't quite catch up to it. The shadow presence loomed, and she wanted to shy away from it. Only there was nowhere left to go. What are you? she asked, exhausted from circling herself. What do you want me to be? the shadow asked her back. I want you to be my father again, she said, her thumb on the lighter getting hot. The shadow took the shape of her father, hand outstretched but it wasn't quite right. He occupied the same amount of space, yes, but something was missing. She turned to get a better look, but the shadow shifted so that it came no closer. From this distance, the shadow gave off no memories of walks in the park, or that one time when he'd almost let her get a dog. The shadow stayed blank, even as it held his perfect form, always slightly out of reach. You're not doing it right, she said. I'm doing exactly what you asked of me, said the shadow. It sounded irritated. But, Mary said, and made another futile turn. Summer picnics? Gone. Pushing a swing? Gone, too. No, you're doing it all wrong. I'm doing exactly what you asked of me. I want you to be him. No, you want me to be the memories of him. But that's not what you asked for, is it? Mary frowned. The tears in the chamber were rising at a precipitous rate. They were up to her neck now, and Teddy B was swimming alongside her. What if I asked for you to be memories of him? Mary asked, standing on tiptoes and raising her chin. 
I would say that the past is what you make of it, little girl. The face that was not her father's face leaned forward, edging almost imperceptibly towards the light. Turn off your light, he said, with a toothful smile that was not his own. And then we'll talk. This was the last straw. Somewhere, a camel's back broke. A train reached the end of the line. And a little girl grew up. I can't take this anymore, Mary screamed as the mercury level reached up to her chin. I hate this. Why am I the only one trying to fix this? Why can't anyone help me? Why do I have to do this all alone? Mary, Mary, you've got to stop, Teddy B called out. I just want things to be like they were supposed to be. She shouted. But as soon as the words left her mouth, she knew that what they were supposed to be wasn't. Not really. There was no way that things were supposed to be or not to be. There was only what it was. Mary cried one last time with the abandon of someone who knew they were almost all cried out. You're drowning us, Mary, Teddy B warned. The light sputtered and disappeared. Darkness enveloped both of them, just before the tears did. Mary held her breath, and then she heard a rumbling sound and felt waves rippling against her. The level of mercury lowered and sank until it was gone, and in front of her was the bright light of day. What's all this? said a man who wore a blue work shirt. Nothing, Mary's mother answered. There was a truck behind her, big and yellow as the sun. Mary hadn't seen him in a while. He was on a dolly lift in the driveway, hand still outstretched, perhaps in parting. She stood in the center of the cement-floored garage and waved back at him. She waved as the movers loaded him aboard until the sliding door was shut and locked and she kept waving even after that, when the truck pulled out of the driveway and started heading down the street. Somewhere in there, he was perhaps still waving back. Her mother frowned at her and went back inside before the truck was fully gone, leaving only a spoon of gray behind. Well, that's that then, Mary said. She looked down at Teddy B. We made it, didn't we? We have. Must mean the story's almost over. She nodded. True. Did we learn anything along the way? You're not crying anymore, so we must have. Mary put a hand up to her cheek. The steady stream of silver had abated. She was free of tears and of the story. I'm going to miss it, Teddy B. Me too, Mary. Just a little. Cassie Alexander is a registered nurse and author of the urban fantasy Edie Spence series, comprised of Night Shifted, Moon Shifted, Shape Shifted, Dead Shifted, 
and Blood Shifted, about a nurse working on a ward for vampire-exposed humans. Check her out at CassieAlexander.com. Kim Rogers is an EMC actress that currently resides in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. During the day, she can be found at Musical Theater International, where she has the pleasure of assisting professional theaters around the world with all their theatrical needs. At night, she can be found flitting about the theater district or anywhere in the West Village that will let her belt out a show tune. Thank you for listening to The Kaleidocast, which is a production of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers, who can be found at bsfwriters.com. Our sound engineer is Atticus Ryan Garten. Your hosts are Brad Parks as Brad Overland, Sam Schreiber as Sam Spellingbound, and Cameron Roberson as James Earl King II. Our theme music is Delusion of the Fury, Act 2, Treats with Life and with Life Despite Life, Arrest, Trial, and Judgment, Joy in the Marketplace, by Harry Parch, used by permission of Innova Recordings and the Harry Parch Foundation. The Kaleidocast and all its contents are protected by a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License, which means you can share it all you want, but don't sell it or change it, and give credit to the Kaleidocast and its authors. Go to our website at kaleidocast.nyc to comment on what you've heard here and for links to all our contributors. <laughs>